There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Thursday, September 26, 2019. On today's programme, the reopening of Lawrence's Gate raised in the Shannad. A new campaign against the public services card. The bill to ban co-living developments and the uproar in the British Parliament last night and the impact here. But first, it's emerged that under the Garda restructuring which we've been following on this programme, Navan is to lose its status as a divisional headquarters. Garda Liam Hennessy, attached to Slane Garda Station, joins us now. He's also the representative from Meath Division, who sits on the Central Executive Committee of the Garda Representative Association. Good morning, Garda Hennessy. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Ola. Now, a lot of concern and disappoint- a disappointment being expressed this morning at the move. Well, there, are, there, there is a lot of dis- uh, disappointment um, among members of the public and Gardaí across County Mead in that um, Commissioner Harris has outlined that as part of the new operating policing model, um, he's going to deploy the new division of headquarters at Mullingar. Um, as we know, the County of Mead has a population of around 195,000 and Westmead has a little shy of 89,000. Um, the location, we believe, is, is, is not suitable. Um, it it will, will have a detachment for the people in County Mead and will have an impact on the service we provide. Now, as you say, Mead is a hugely growing area, a big commuter belt. So you're saying it just seems a bit illogical to move the, the, the divisional centre further away? It does, by population, and also historically, We've seen resources pulled towards headquarters stations such as scenes of crime, traffic specialist units, uh, training, etc. And, and this culture must stop to ensure that the resources remain deployed and available across the entire divisions. I now, mean, obviously, uh, the, the Garda stations in Navan and where are, what have you are not going to close down. It's not that they're going to be removed. It's simply that the centre of focus, the command centre as such, goes elsewhere. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and that movement of the centre of focus, as you refer, is going to have a huge impact on the resources we have to do the job to tackle our day-to-day policing needs. And obviously this would impact uh, greatly on, on rural areas, you feel? It would. It, it naturally, it tends to filter down from the large urban areas into rural areas. And while well, policing by its nature would react to where, the, where it's needed the most, where the most people are, I mean... 
as part of this also, we will be part of an eastern region where we'll have a headquarters in Kilkenny. And and you also have, um, apart from those geographical issues that you've, you've stated there, you've concerns around the funding. What are they exactly? Well, Orla, the GRA don't see this working without a substantial level of funding in areas such as accommodation, manpower, information technology, uniform equipment and welfare. And, and I mean, re- very recently there, 15 million has been cut from the policing budget as a result of the visits of President Trump and Vice President Spence. A pence, sorry, and I mean, for this to work, it's 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 going to require a huge level of funding. Now, as regards the actual resourcing, as you've said, and the manpower, and obviously that has a big impact on individual Gardaí. Will they now have to drive much further just to get to work if they were were previously based in Navan and now are going to be in Mullingar or Kilkenny? That's a, pos- a possibility in a lot of cases, and from members on the ground. Um, they're hearing of these things in 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 the media, and and like where 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 their daily working life is going to be hugely impacted. Um, they just feel let down and not fully informed. But yes, they'll certainly have larger distances to travel to walk, and also in in, in our day to day policing we'll have larger distances to travel to and from headquarters stations. And when you say uh, there's a lack of communication, uh, you're saying your members are reading this the same way we are in the news this morning. Have you not had any communication directly? Very little. There's been a lack of engagement and consultation. For example, Orla, this was piloted in four divisions. Now, to date, on Garda Shikon, have not published any assessment of these pilots to date. And from, from what we are hearing on the ground, there's been administrative the administrative burdens are causing a huge um, pressure. And again, as I've mentioned earlier, the long travel distances between stations. And when you really say expected. there's a lack of communication, um, Garda Hennessy, uh, what way normally do these major structural changes or, or, or things that would impact widely on Garda, what, what way is that normally communicated to you? Do you get circulars? Do you get meeting, are meetings called? What way does it normally work? Normally it would come in the form of circulars, but um, the GRA has had little or no involvement in, in this operation policing model and we, we just feel we haven't been fully uh, contacted or consulted on it. So the, the main concern here really is that all of this change is underway and you're all just not sure how it's going to play out in, in the short term. Correct. All right. Well, Garda Liam, Liam Hennessy, thank you for joining us with that insight and we're joined now by uh, Deputy Shane Cassell's Fianna Fáil TD for Mead West and also Deputy Pather Tobin, aim to leader and TD for Mead West. And uh, you're both very welcome. Can I start with you, um, Deputy Castles, on this uh, whole thing? You've described it as gut-wrenching. Why is that? Uh, good morning, Orla. And yes, certainly it is gut-wrenching. And I think it was uh, captured perfectly there by Garda Hennessy in terms of the impact uh, for the people of Mead. Uh, what I would say, first of all, is that at our policing meeting that we hold um, regularly with uh, the Chief Superintendent Fergus Healy uh, from Mead uh, and we held it on Monday with him. I think he, he gave a fair indication where things were leading to because he spoke of how the state of guard accommodation in Mead uh, was poor and how Mullingar and Athlone were currently getting new stations built and obviously that was a determining factor in that they had facilities ready to go uh, and I think to explain to people because I've said it's not just about bricks and mortar it is about where the focus is going to lie. And when you take the Mead, uh, West Mead Division now, stretching from the coast over near where you are, all the way over to Atlone, that's 162 kilometres. And that's a fairly expansive area now. 
for the Gardaí to have to cover, <clears throat> excuse me, and in the context of this divisional headquarters. And over the past 18 months, I've been fighting in the Dáil for a new divisional headquarters for Mead, with the assistance, I would say, of the, the senior management of the force in County Mead, people like Fergus Healy. And last summer, I travelled to Wexford uh, with Fergus and the former superintendent, Mick Devine, and members of the policing committee to see the state-of-the-art divisional headquarters down there and to explain to the public why this is important is, as Garda Hennessy touched on, there are things like the, um, the special crimes unit, the uh, laboratories, the armed unit, which are all collated in that one building. And that allows the focus of the Gardaí to be very centred on where they, um, the clear and present danger and threats are posed. We'll come back to that in just a moment. I just want to bring in uh, Deputy Tobin in here as well. Um, now, we heard that there are concerns around infrastructure, obviously, but, but now, again, I'm hearing that the new centres in Kilkenny and uh, Mullingar are state-of-the-art. So presumably they do have all of this IT infrastructure we're talking about, or do they? Well, I suppose it's, it's important to look at what's happening on the ground first and foremost. And we know that in May, over the last number of years, we've seen a significant increase in crime and antisocial behaviour. Uh, some of our towns are the locations of drug dealing. Uh, addicts are found in alleyways and in parks and in toilets. We know in Trim, a couple of weeks ago, petrol bombs were thrown at the courthouse there. In the estates around uh, the county, I've heard of hatchet attacks in the middle of the day in those housing estates. I know of restaurants in Meath that are closing earlier than any other restaurant in their chain due to antisocial behaviour. I also know of people who have put up bulletproof doors on their security uh, within the town. Uh, we also know that sexual assaults have risen radically in County Meath over the last uh, number of years. So we know that there's a serious problem with crime and antisocial behaviour in Meath. Now, at this time, we have a government and a police force which is actually taking out the focus and attention and moving it elsewhere. They're moving it to a population that's half the size of County Meath that's growing at a slower level than County Meath. And it's very logical that if you don't have the resources and if you don't have the focus, you won't have the situation resolved. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely incredible that the Minister is presiding over this. Meath is at the bottom of the rung in loads of different areas. Indeed, one of the key issues that we've been raising is that Meath has the lowest number of Gardaí per capita in the state. West Meath has double the amount of Gardaí per capita than County Meath has. If we don't have the Gardaí, we're not going to be able to tackle the problem. Whole swathes of Meath, if you travel from Enfield to Clonard up to Trim, you might have only about five Gardaí on duty on a given Sunday. And if two of those Gardaí are called out uh, to deal with a, an arrest, you, you literally have people who are you're struggling to answer the telephones with regards to the, the issues that are coming in to the Gardaí. So and if I can bring you back in there, Ed, uh, Shane Castles, last uh, December there was uh, some strong reporting around how crime in Meath had actually gone down and I think you welcomed it at the time and there was great effort being made to bring it down and you were commending the, the Chief Superintendent at the time, five extra Gardaí, but you're saying all of that good work is now being undone. I think what, what is key here is the issue of the motive uh, for what the commissioner is doing. And we want to see more boots in the ground. As I think it's fairly evident, it's very rare for members of the Gardaí to come on to the show and actually discuss these issues. So for Garda Hennessy to come on and express his concern, that's a significant uh, indication of the disquiet among the force. 
because we have been trying to build up the numbers in the Garda division in County Meath. And what is going to happen here now is there's obviously going to be an internal discussion about whether members of the force, which as we know is a larger per capita in West Mead, is going to be just redirected into Mead and massaging of the figures, for example. And the issues in Mead are very unique. We've got a town in the centre of the, of the county in Navan which has a population explosion. And in fairness, uh, Chief Superintendent uh, Healy and, and Superintendent Farrell, they are trying to get more boots on the ground in policing in Mead. But there's huge rural expanses around the, the southern part and the northern part of the county as well. And how they're going to actually balance that is going to be very, very difficult. And I don't think they're making any qualms about that. They're saying there's going to be major HR issues here. It's not going to happen overnight. And as Garda Hennessy has said, it's going to take massive massive funding and at this moment in time they're devoid of funding so they've announced a grandiose plan but there hasn't been the requisite backup of financial uh, commitment from the minister to actually implement that and that is actually causing a huge amount of disquiet as well so he's announced this plan which has put us on the back foot in terms of getting on the building program for developing Garda facilities in County Mead and all we're getting instead of the new facilities that West Mead are getting is a sticking plaster job with a, a, a small amount of money for Navan Garda stations and other across the county and the impact of that is that when it comes down to very specialised crimes in County Mead. The Gardaí do not have the resources to actually do the research. I've gone round Navan Garda Station. I've seen the squalor, the cramped conditions. The Gardaí, the 120 Gardaí in Navan are trying to work in. It's a disgrace. That's an old Christian Brothers uh, school accommodation unit and it's been retrofitted with prefabs out the back for a Gardaí. The net result is they don't have the facilities to carry out proper policing across our county. They are doing their best and putting themselves on the front line. this question. It's not good enough and it's up to the, the likes of the government to actually front up and actually address the squalor uh, that they're giving our, our men and women in the Gardaí. Now I can hear the passion in both the voices there. This is obviously something that is really, really core to, to, to both of you in terms of your work, um, Shane Castles and Pather Tobin. But I have to put the question to both of you and you can take it in turn. With three government TDs in Meath, how is this happening? Well, I would say, for example, I, I referenced the fact that members of the Oireachtas were invited uh, to that particular visit uh, last year to the, see the, the state of the art facilities. Uh, the Gardaí initiated that uh, visit and wanted people in the Oireachtas to see the compare and contrast. We went to Navan, saw the squalor, went to Wexford, saw the multi-million euro facility. Not one of the government ministers came on that particular trip. Maybe they're blind to the obvious issues that are actually pertaining in the county, and they do need to address this. We're not even on the billing works programme with the OPW for facilities in County Mead and it's not just about bricks and mortar. We've had a chief super who's had to change the uh, policing unit from North Mead pulling it out of there down into the kind of Ashburn area to deal with the threat from uh, gangs and fingers coming across the border and infiltrating that area. Absolutely and Pather Tobin your response now please. One from the other. Pather Tobin. I think probably one of the reasons why you're hearing the stress in our voices is this is not unusual for Meath. So Meath always loses out. And we're not just speaking the poor mouth here. If you look at Loud Meath uh, ETB, when the VECs were joined together, we lost the headquarters for that. Uh, Navan is the biggest town in the country without a rail line. We have the lowest mental health investment in the country. We have one of the lowest IDA, EI investments in the country. The ministers in County Mead are asleep at the wheel, in my view. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. Myself and Shane attended a joint policing committee meeting uh, in Mead County Council with Senior Gardaí uh, in the area last Monday. There was, there was no ministers uh, in attendance. 
the pressure has to be put on to the ministers in Meath to start standing up for their county. And just, just to bring to your attention, this Saturday, uh, the Safer Meath campaign will have a march in the centre of Navan at 1pm, starting at Kennedy Place. It's a cross-community, cross-party organisation. And the objective is to see can we get more Gardaí in County Meath and can we see can we have proper policing in Navan and the rest of the towns in the county. It is too serious not to stand up and fight. We have to seek and we sort this. All right, well, we will uh, We will try and get a government uh, spokesperson in maybe tomorrow or early next week to respond to some of the uh, uh, suggestions you've made there. And we will no doubt be following this one closely as time goes on. Deputy Shane Castles and Deputy Pather Tobin. And earlier we heard from Garda Liam Hennessy. Thank you for joining us on the programme today. We'll take a break. Orla Comedy on LMFM. Still to come on the programme, was it all heat or was there any light at all? in the British House of Parliament last night. We'll have a report on that. But first, a Sinn Féin bill to ban co-living has passed its first stage with the aim of reversing a power giving to the housing minister to impose planning guidelines on local authorities. And co-living is, of course, a move to build large blocks, usually in cities, where people rent a room with shared facilities and kitchens instead of renting an apartment. Short time ago, I spoke to Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and spokesperson on housing and I asked him about his concerns around co-living and the power it might give to developers to create housing that may well be substandard or indeed incompatible with creating good community. Absolutely, there are two problems with co-living and keep in mind uh, until the middle of last year co-living wasn't legal in Ireland. It was uh, uh, Owen Murphy uh, who introduced mandatory guidelines permitting it. The two problems are this. Uh, what we know so far is the developments in Dublin are going to charge people €1,300 Euros a month for 12 square metres of personal living space. So that's the kind of average size of a small hotel room. Uh, And they're also planning to deny uh, these people tenancies. Uh, So instead they will be there under licence, which means they could be evicted at short notice and they wouldn't have the same rights as other tenants. Uh, And this is just the wrong way to think about providing good quality, affordable accommodation uh, for anybody, whether it's a young professional or or a young family or, or anyone else. But there's another big problem with co-living, which is when you allow developers to max out the number of accommodation units that they can deliver in a particular site, that has a dramatic impact on the price of land uh, and also on what other landowners and developers do. So we've seen in Dublin city centre land double in value from 4 million to 10 million for a site because a co-living development can change the nature of what was to be built on that from, say, 47 apartments to 244 bed spaces. So that's crowding out any prospect of affordable housing or apartment delivery in our city centre. Now, do you so, think that it is we have a real anxiety about allowing developers away with things because of the, the history we have in this country of how badly things went wrong? In other cities, they do have co-living spaces and young workers you know, who are very flexible and and take six month contracts, say that they're happy with them. But is it this a a local anxiety, do you think? Well, in fact, I've met one of the global uh, leaders in co-living, a a company called The Collective that have co-living space in in Britain. Uh, And in fact, in in their first development, which has now been up and running three years, uh, uh, only about 5% of people have remained in it for any reasonable length of time. And in fact, the reason why people go into co-living is not because they're choosing it, it's because it's the only thing available. Uh, This idea that there's a demand out there for people to live uh, in 12 square metres of living space 
uh, uh, for 1300 euros a or month. Or the idea is, that it's glamorous and fun and the shared kitchen is going to be very congenial, etc. Look, lots, lots of us uh, at an earlier stage in, in, in our, our, our rental lives rented shared living. So I'm not against the idea of shared living. My problem is the way in which uh, the minister's guidelines allow developers to squeeze very, very large numbers of people uh, who will then be charged very high prices with no tenancy rights isn't the way that, 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 that you plan a good city. So the, is, the issue isn't being against co, co, you know, kind of collective living. Uh, it's about this particular kind of development. And again, our problem is this. If you look at the urban centre of Dublin, and this is also happening in Cork and to a lesser extent in Galway, the only things that are really getting built at the moment are our co-living developments, our expensive hotels, uh, or our very, very expensive uh, high-end student accommodation that's beyond the reach of students, you know, from, from uh, many other parts of the country, including uh, uh, Meath and Loud. Dublin and is full of those new developments and the is, rents are extortionate. And it is crowding out the possibility of affordable student accommodation, affordable rental accommodation uh, and other types of things. So so these types of developments have a corrosive impact on our, on our housing system and Owen Murphy should not have permitted them in his mandatory guidelines last year. And what my bill seeks to do is to overturn that very, very bad decision he made. Now, not just on co-living, but also on build to rent, reduction of apartment sizes and standard developments uh, and the removal of caps on building heights in county and city development plans. Because ultimately, planning decisions should be made democratically by local authorities, uh, not at the, at the whim of uh, a minister uh, uh, who has been heavily lobbied by sectoral uh, industry. Now, you've said interest. that your bill has uh, passed the first stage, but... Does it have any any prospect of going through or is this exercise really about drawing attention to, as you say, is, is quite a serious uh, situation we're, we're facing in, in, in homelessness in Ireland? No, it's a, it's a serious attempt to change the law. Um, obviously, uh, opposition bills have a greater chance of, of, of success um, because of the nature of the doll. Uh, I've had a number of, of uh, private members' piece of legislation pass because we've got a majority of support. Two things will, will be really key here. The first, of course, is what Fianna Fáil will do. And when we introduce the bill at second stage and there's a formal debate and vote, we'll see what that party does. And the second thing is the government is blocking a lot of opposition bills that have passed uh, uh, through the doll uh, with a, 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 an arcane device called a money message. Now, I suspect they won't be able to do that with this bill, but again, we'll have to wait and see. So look, it's only the first stage. It doesn't have legal effect. There's a long way to go. But I also think it's important that we do have a debate about uh, uh, how we want our cities and urban centres to develop. So, for example, and this isn't just about Dublin, you have significant urban centres, in, uh, particularly in, in Dundalk and Drogheda. Uh, you have you know, major commuter areas around Ashburn and Ratos, etc. Uh, and do we want to have properly planned, uh, livable communities in which students, young people, people halfway through their life cycle and retired people can have good quality, affordable accommodation. A good mix of and a good community with, life. Exactly, but also with really good services and infrastructure and the difficulty is we're almost repeating the mistakes of the past back in the Celtic Tiger we allowed you know uh, developer-led uh, unsustainable suburbs at the edges of our urban centres that then spilled into the commuter belt, including in County Louth and, and Meath. Now what we've got is, again, developer-led, or in this case, uh, a global investor-led developments, which are packing people like sardines into developments which might have a kind of a hip and trendy look about them in the first one or two or three years. But who's to say these won't end up as tenements of the future for very low-income families? And you feel because of all of this... And because of all of this, you feel your bill could indeed pass because you might just get popular support. 
Well, if, if I listen to, for example, the city councillors in Dublin who were who at the cutting edge of this, increasingly city councillors, including city councillors from, from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, are saying this is not the kind of development that we want in our city. And what I would hope is when the bill comes to the Dáil at second stage, those councillors will be saying to their TDs and to their, their government ministers in the case of, of Fine Gael, uh, that, you know what, we want the government to be performing uh, uh, promoting good quality affordable accommodation for singles for families and indeed for students and that means scrapping this bad idea of co-living scrapping some of the reduction in apartment standards uh, and getting back to building good quality accommodation houses and apartments at affordable prices uh, in communities with good services where people really want to live. And finally then, Ona Brian, the uh, rent uh, story this morning, obviously, uh, you know, those increases, very stark. Uh, your reaction to that? Yeah, and in, in, in your own counties, for example, of Louth or Meath, the, the annual rent increases are very significant. It's 5% in Louth in the last year uh, and almost uh, 6% in Meath. Uh, uh, so people are paying, you know, an extra €600 Euros a year in Louth and an extra €700 Euros a year in Meath. And, for example, in some of your, your commuter belt areas, like in Ashburn, for example, or Ratos, or indeed in Drogheda, both the rural and urban areas, the rents have gone sky high, almost €1,400 Euros a month in Ratos, almost €1,300 Euros in, in Ashburn and Drogheda, both rural and, and, and urban, as well as Dundalk South over the South Jurmark. What this shows, the rent pressure zones have failed and failed miserably. We need an emergency rent freeze to cap all rents. We also need to put money back in renters' pockets uh, through a, a refundable tax credit worth the value of a month's rent. But crucially, government has to start investing in good quality, affordable rental accommodation for people who aren't eligible for council housing, but want to be able to rent and live, particularly in your urban centres, uh, uh, whether it's Drogheda, Dundalk, uh, or some of the towns around the edge of Dublin, such as Ashburn. Deputy Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and spokesperson on housing. Thanks for joining us this morning on LMFM. And later on the programme, a call from the Vincent de Paul to protect the vulnerable from increased costs associated with climate action. We'll have uh, an item on that later for you, but first we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. And yet again, there was uproar in the British Parliament yesterday evening as British Prime Minister Boris Johnson defiantly refused to resign or apologise after the UK Supreme Court ruled his closing of Parliament as illegal. When talking about the law designed to block a no deal, he repeatedly referred to the Surrender Act or the Capitulation Act, language that was described in very emotive terms by the opposition as incitement to hatred, as they remembered their murdered colleague Joe Cox. And here to discuss this and more is Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Orla. If you don't mind, I'll come to you in just a moment. We're just going to hear some of that um, sound from the Parliament last night with this short report from Trevor Keegan. Boris Johnson was largely unrepentant when he returned to Parliament, basically blaming it for telling tales and running to court. Instead of facing the voters, the opposition turned tail and fled and fled from an election. They ran the courts instead. He continued to put it up to the opposition to take a vote of no confidence in him, but Jeremy Corbyn wasn't for turning. It's very simple. If you want an election, get an extension and let's have an election. More emotively, Boris Johnson was berated for saying the best way to honour murdered MP Joe Cox was to get Brexit done. One of our former colleagues and friend MP Paula Sharp said online abusers often quote the Prime Minister's words back at her. Many of us in this place subject to death threats 
and abuse every single day. And let me tell the Prime Minister that they often quote his words, surrender act, betrayal, traitor. After what many political commentators described as a bear pit, another parliamentary suspension will be sought today, this time to allow the Conservatives hold their party conference from Sunday until Wednesday. What I was struck by, uh, Daniel McConnell, listening to that last night and again there was the absolute emotion from a lot of the opposition and nearly the scathing, uh, jocose response from Boris Johnson, which was really a bit inappropriate, wasn't it? It was certainly very unseemly, Orla, uh, without a question. Uh, I mean, I watched the vast majority of the exchanges yesterday uh, once Boris Johnson had given his opening address. And there was a very ugly air to a lot of the contributions. I mean, obviously, this is a parliament that is very much in its last days. Um, and, you know, people are obviously calling for that, that to be brought forward. And it's, it's now really about how, just how that parliament is brought to a close as to rather than when. Um, but the defiant tone struck by Boris Johnson uh, was remarkable, given, I suppose, the absolute humiliation he suffered by at the hands of the Supreme Court the day before. Um, but he was unrepentant. You know, he, you know, he was kind of saying, I respected the verdict of the, of the judiciary, but, and that but was very significant because it allowed him and his supporters to just to kind of say, to try and undermine um, the, the, the sort of the weight and the force of the, of the judgment. Um, and, and let's rem- remind ourselves, this was a unanimous verdict of the Supreme Court on top of a unanimous verdict of the Scottish Court as well. So, you know, this was a heavy defeat by, for Boris Johnson, but he struck this unrepentant, defiant tone, and a rather ugly tone, I thought, as well. Um, he, like, he didn't even have the good grace to apologise for, you know... He, what and as you say, thought. he was goading and he was challenging the opposition for a vote of no confidence, but obviously Jeremy Corbyn is biding his time. He's not going to do that too quickly because there's more to be achieved here, really, isn't there? Yeah, and, and there's an element of political manoeuvring going on here, you know, in terms of like Boris or um, Jeremy Corbyn is simply not going to accede to any sort of request from Boris Johnson. Trust is broken down on all sides. So the normal sort of, you know, with, there often is times and cooperation as to when things are, are, are agreed upon. There's none of that clearly going on at the moment. The, the you know, relations are pretty sour at the moment. Um, and Boris Johnson did nothing to help that yesterday. Um, you know, he, he has an angry speaker in John Burko, you know, uh, you know, in terms of who has, you know, set out his stall in defence of Parliament at, at, in, in the face of this prorogation uh, process. Um, so now I suppose what we're just looking to try and find out is how do we get over this hump of when the election will be called? You know, will they be done and dusted in time for um, the end of October, the 31st deadline? What will happen in terms, I mean, there's all sorts of talk that, you know, a temporary or a, a caretaker administration might go in and, and, and see the process because Boris Johnson's just not willing to essentially adhere to the will of Parliament. Um, so it's still very, very messy. Um, and hopefully today's uh, event may, may bring some clarity, but I wouldn't be too hopeful because, you know, the fundamental position is we still don't have detailed proposals from the United Kingdom uh, get handed over to, to the European Union. So there's nothing to discuss. The European Union is a legalistic body. It, it refers or likes to uh, do its business on paper. Uh, and there is no firm proposal from the United Kingdom to replace the backstop. So we're literally in a holding pattern until that happens. And, there's, um, there's no room for waffle. And, and indeed, uh, Thonish Simon Coveney has been quite uh, forceful this morning. He's hit out at the UK's, what he describes, fanciful Brexit proposals, um, warning that a, a no deal will require border infrastructure. And that's the detail you're talking about, as you say, that the EU just demands because they can't make decisions on, on bottles of smoke as such. 
No, they can't. And, and I mean, ultimately, what we, we've heard from the British side is that oh, we will bring forward proposals at the right time. And you're kind of going, well, we're kind of at the very much at the 11th hour already. And you're going, if this is not the right time, then when? My own feeling is that because we've got the, the Tory party conference coming up, uh, little or anything will happen before then. I think there's a kind of almost, and I, I just looked, listened to the teacher in New York yesterday, um, making it clear that a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff that's going to happen between now and the end of the Tory party conference is likely to be superfluous. Like it's going to be, you know, nothing really concrete is going to move uh, between now and then. So we need to get through the Tory party conference and then into the first week or second week of October, things may may begin to move very quickly. The one hope I have is that, you know, Boris Johnson and his team don't seem to be in any way wedded to the same sort of um, position that, that Theresa May was in relation to the backstop. You know, they, they are willing to look at a Northern Ireland only uh, kind of solution. And I think come the heel of the hunt, even though it might be opposed by the DUP, I still think that might be a more viable solution than, than something else. Do you think uh, that you at this point, um, Boris Johnson is kind of hoping for Brexit by default? Because, you know, as you say, he said he was respectful of the Supreme Court uh, verdict. Um, but then he really is hoping that, you know, in the absence of anything else happening, Brexit will just happen by default on October the 31st. Is that, do you think, the line he's going with? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that. I, I definitely think there's, there's a part of him that says we need to crash out uh, and then an ele- an, uh, like allow an election to ha- happen because he needs to obviously keep Nigel Farage's Brexit party at bay to a li- little bit. If he can kind of almost contain the right flank of his own party and the hardline Brexiteers going into an election saying, listen, we've delivered Brexit, we're out, um, but you're essentially in a holding pattern then, then he can call an election. The hope would be he comes back with an overall majority and then he's in a position to really kind of negotiate. I've always been of the view that this parliament was never really going to be the parliament to deliver Brexit, just given the arithmetic. Uh, so I definitely think an election needs to happen. But I suppose we're, we're just in this kind of holding pattern to find the mechanism to allow that election to happen without utter chaos from... from I from suppose the alternative to Brexit by default is even a delay, is a delay or even a cancellation. Um, although uh, Mr Johnson has sworn to die in a ditch rather than, than allow anything like that happen. But at the EU Leaders Summit on October the 17th and 18th, there is some idea that he might actually look for an extension or that he might suggest something. But I, I suppose that's just uh, surmising at this point. I, I mean, given how forceful he's been in setting his face against such an eventuality, it'd be very hard to see how he would climb down off that perch. Uh, whereas if, for example, um, you know, mechanism happens that would force the election before October 31st or, or force the, the, the chamber or the, the, the House of Parliament into some other um, scenario where a delay has happened and it's not necessary, he doesn't actually have to call or directly request a delay then then he may go with that. But I mean, ultimately at this stage, it's still so messy. There are so many different scenarios being put out there by the opposition, by his own side, you know. Um, but from a news point of view, from an Irish perspective, you know, they're holding fast to this idea of the backstop. Yes, they're conceding that checks will now have to happen, that's a, you know, that this is a relatively new uh, development. But ultimately what they're saying is that, you know, the withdrawal agreement is there, the backstop is there until it's replaced with something better. It's up to the British to bring forward those proposals. They have not done so. So as I said, we're in this very we're very much in this holding pattern. All, all we can do is, is watch and wait at this point. Mm. Daniel McConnell, political editor with the Irish Examiner, thanks for joining us on LMFM this morning. We'll be taking your texts and comments after the break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now it's time for a look at your calls and texts with Marie Kearns. Good morning, Marie. Good morning, Orla, and good morning. 
morning to everybody listening in. Lorraine is one of those listeners and she phoned in from Navin today. She cannot understand how Mullingar has been chosen as the new the headquarters for the newly merged Meath, West Meath Division. She says that Meath has a greater population and it just doesn't make sense to her. Listening to your interview with the Garda representative, it certainly doesn't make sense moving the divisional headquarters to West Meath when Meath has doubled the population. Orla says, Deirdre, it will be a disaster if the headquarters go to uh, West Meath. It doesn't make sense at all. A texter says, you don't see that many Gardaí on the beat throughout the county. So I wonder what is going to happen now when, as you say, the command centre has moved Orla. It is very worrying for ordinary people. Orla, you are absolutely right in mentioning that Meath has three government TDs and a senator. How can they allow this to happen? Noel wants to know. Do they think it's the right move? I'd like to hear what they have to say, says Noel. Damien says that, that, that the whole thing is a mess, that the county is a mess and deteriorating at a rapid pace. Sean says that uh, Deputy Shane Castles came across as being passionate about this all right. But Orla, actions speak louder than words. Is he going to continue to prop up the government that is allowing this to happen? They were very concerned about it, as you say. And um, obviously the, the, the location in Westmead, I'm sure they will welcome it in Westmead. I'm sure they will. But there was a lot of a sense of a lot of things being taken from Meath, not just the Garda station. Didn't you get that sense from them as well? Absolutely. Anya says, uh, tweeted us, I think it's fair to say that Meath will not be adequately policed. That's assuming you think it was in the first place. I get that they need to streamline management, but 40 miles in rural Ireland is unacceptable. A caller says, I live in County Meath. I feel that there's a huge amount of antisocial behaviour right throughout the county. I think this is a hugely worrying development. What does it mean in the area? Who is going to be in charge? Will there be somebody in charge at Navin Station or will everything come from Mullingar? So lots of thoughts already on that or uh, or less of the rest. Right. Well, look, we'll we'll come back maybe to some more texts and comments later. Yes, or have I have I have lots now. more no, here. No, we, we'll come we'll back come to back them, later, to them yeah. yeah, but lots on the Garda station and lots yes. still coming in as we speak. Indeed. Okay. Well, we'll come back to you then later with some more um, Marie later on in the program. Now, a time frame for the full opening of St Lawrence's Gate in Drogheda was raised in the Shannon this week by Senator Gerard Crockwell, Minister of State with special responsibility for the Office of Public Works, and he did so on behalf of Independent Drogheda Councillor Paddy. McQuillan and he joins us down the line. Uh, good morning, Senator Crockwell. Good morning, Orland. Good morning to your listeners. Always a pleasure to speak to the people up there with you. And thank you indeed for coming to us this morning. What did you say in the House about our local treasure and how did it go down? Well, uh, your local treasure, Paddy McQuillan, when he approached me on this, the finest example of a Barbican in Ireland, um, his passion to have the gate restored completely blew me away. I don't get involved in local parish pump politics as a member of the Oireachtas in the Shannon. I get involved in national issues or issues of national importance. And the Barbican or uh, the, the gate in London gate is an issue of national importance. So we brought it up. Um, it is in existence there since the 13th century, I think 1280, it was first constructed as one of the gates of Drogheda. 
Uh, Paddy was absolutely passionate that this gate should be preserved and that work should immediately start to restore it to its finest finest uh, uh, construction. And um, I agreed to take it up. I took it up with uh, Minister Morton. And Minister Morton was quite concerned about the state of the, the gate. The gate has been subjected to uh, damage by trucks going through it until the uh, traffic routes were changed up in Drada. Uh, but the minister is concerned. But my concern is that the money is not there to actually do the job. The minister was honest. He said he's concerned about it. He wants remedial work done. He wants the gate to be open when possible for the people of Drada. But as of right now, there is no plan uh, other than to appraise the project and try and cost it. Well, as you said, um, Senator Crockwell, um, uh, Councillor McQuillan is very passionate about it. And so are, I would say, 95% of the population of Drogheda. It really has a place in people's heart because it is so historic and so symbolic, as you say, and it is really the symbol of the town. But one of the things in the response in the House from um, uh, 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 Minister Moran that kind of concerned me was that he said it needs a lot of cooperation from the the OPW, the Department of Culture, the local authority. And, you know, you often worry, does cooperation of that sort, you know, materialise? Have you concerns about that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I I always worry when we have three or four agencies involved in any project. And and it's my view that uh, where something like St. Lawrence's Gate comes uh, comes up. It is a national treasure. It is not. Uh, it certainly belongs to the people of, of Drogheda and Drogheda uh, Council will look after it. But I believe to make it serviceable, to make it useful and to preserve it for generations to come, it's a national issue. And in that regard, I don't believe that two or three departments should be involved. I believe that one department and one department only, the Office of Public Works, should be responsible for these national monuments. And Orla, to be honest, if you go around the country and look at some of the work that has been done by the OPW, they do a fantastic job. But we often fall between the floorboards where we're trying to please three different organisations at the one time. And Paddy was very, very, Paddy McQuillan was very, very adamant that one agency should take this over and repair it and then hand it back to the council to look after there afterwards. So I, I have to applaud Paddy. I don't normally take up uh, issues, but uh, Councillor McQuillan was uh, adamant that this was done. And in fact, he wanted to try and be in the Senate when that debate was taking place to meet the minister afterwards to impress upon him the urgency. And as you say, uh, it's a national issue, it's not a local issue, but indeed it took local people to get it close to traffic. It was, as you say, so damaged over the years by traffic and people campaigned long and hard to get it closed. And that was just local people giving their time voluntarily uh, to it. And it shouldn't have been the case. It should have been um, on the on the national agenda before that. Absolutely. And um, uh, the, the best example I can give where projects like this are concerned, a crying child will always get dinner first. And, um, you, you know, unfortunately, this is going to take um, a campaign in Drogheda. And I know Paddy McQuillan is just one of the many councillors up there. I know that Paddy will lead this along with the other uh, councillors that are up there to get the project finished. The important thing is to restore it before it falls into further disrepair. And, and and to open it up to more people, to let more people appreciate what's inside. Now, we know there are structural issues. We know it's cramped inside, but it absolutely has to be opened up rather than on the bean feast occasions as it's opened up now. It has to be opened up on a regular basis to tourism. 
Well, it's it's rather ironic that Drogheda being a gateway town to the ancient east, um, its gateway is not available 24 hours a day, seven days a week for tourism in the country. And I I think if they restore the gate, if they put the money into it, um, it it will return the investment in uh, many, many ways. It's a wonderful part of the country up there, so it is. And And Senator Crockwell, we have to ask you, will you keep flying the flag for us and will you keep looking for that funding for us? I'll tell you, with people like Paddy McQuillan and Maeve Yore and other people like that up there constantly on my case, you can be sure that I won't get a chance to sit on my laurels with it. Well, Senator Crockwell, we appreciate that very much and thank you for joining us this morning on LMFM. That's Senator Crockwell, the Minister of State with special responsibility for the Office of Public Works. And back to you now, Marie Kearns. Any more comments in to us? Yes, well, John phoned in again on the, the HQ moving and says that he's listened with interest to the debate on the divisional changes and he was somewhat surprised to hear a comment be made about the lack of comments from the three Finnegale TDs in the county. John says for too long in this in this country, politicians made decisions they had no business being a part of. And if the new guard, a commissioner who was brought in to specifically revamp the fir- the force, has decided that these changes are what's needed to bring the force back on track, then what's the big deal? John says he doesn't believe it'll have a huge impact on the area. He lives in Navan and is a law-abiding citizen like thousands of others in the county. Why are the politicians getting so upset about the decision they have no place being part of. Shane Castle seems to have conveniently forgotten that Fianna Fáil was the party who closed down Templemore for two years and were still playing catch-up on Garda figures since that decision. Well, back to the earlier point about um, pushing it and getting more uh, response from uh, the, the government side. And obviously we said we will try and do that on the programme yes, next I, year. I, I, I mean, I did try and contact the, the local TDs. We, we do have... Um, Deputy De- De- or the Junior Minister coming on tomorrow, Damien English, in relation to another issue. So I'm sure we'll be raising it with him we on that. We can put a few questions and, to him then, uh, yes. Minister Helen McEntee is abroad on government business and uh, Minister Regina Doherty was also tied up today. So I did put in the calls, but I'm sure we will have opportunity to put oh, those questions. Oh, we will. This one is going to run, indeed. So I'll finish on that one, Orla, if that's OK. And if I get a chance, I'll come back in later on because I have more on other topics that we've been discussing. All right. Thanks, Marie Kearns, with those comments. And please do keep them coming and we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now still to come on the programme, special needs education and the call for greater planning to cope with demand. But first, in a week when climate action has been making the headlines all over the world, the Society of the St. Vincent de Paul has said that significantly more investment is required to tackle energy poverty and that the cost of climate action must not fall disproportionately on low income households and they've made a submission to the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action to this effect and we're joined now by Kieran Stafford the National President of the Vincent de Paul. Good morning Kieran. Good morning Orna. What did you have in your submission? Uh, well essentially we it was important for us to address the committee um, and put the point forward that uh, if there is to be a, car- a carbon tax and that certainly seems to be the case uh, that it shouldn't uh, pour more misery on people who are who are already uh, struggling to heat their homes and and to, you know to, to, to get by in that respect. 
Now, um, according to the survey of income and living conditions, almost 400,000 people went without uh, heating due to costs. That was in the year of 2017. That seems like an extraordinary amount of people suffering a winter without fuel, doesn't it? Yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure if if if, uh, if that reflects, you know, a total uh, uh, inability to, to, to heat their homes, but certainly on an ongoing basis and on, on a, a regular basis. Uh, in the work that we do, which is visiting people in their homes uh, to assist with, with difficulties that they have, uh, you know, we as volunteer members would experience uh, going into homes that are absolutely freezing, uh, damp, you know, because of the lack of heat and the lack of, of ventilation. Um, and we're, we're seeing these situations day in, day out. Um, and if we have a carbon tax, uh, which would be essentially on the fossil fuels, um, you know, we would see that as, as a heap and even more difficulty and more misery on, on people who already uh, are struggling to, to, to afford the cost of heating their homes. Now, the Vincent de Paul spends uh, an average of about four million on fuel and utilities um, every year. And 70 percent of that expenditure is on solid fuel and oil. And I know the sort of the bag of coal arriving is just so important. So you have to change the way you do your business as well, don't you? Uh, well, I mean, we would be delighted um, to see homes, um, you know, better insulated uh, uh, with better and, and, and more decent kind of heating systems. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know that we are fully supportive of of, of of action on climate change. You know, because that actually climate change, it, it, you know, as everybody knows, affects uh, people who are poor uh, disproportionately in, in terms of people who are who are more well off. Uh, so we'd be delighted to, to, to go into to homes with these super heating systems. The reality, unfortunately, is that the homes that we're going into, uh, you know, are, are, are people, you know, who have oil or who, or who have gas bills or who have solid fuel, uh, you know, and uh, uh, unfortunately, year on year, um, we uh, get the requests in for, uh, you know, the, 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 the bag of coal throughout the winter. Uh, and this is a lifeline for many people that we would assist. Now, we heard earlier uh, this week from Father Father Sean Healy of the Social Justice Ireland uh, group, and he was talking about the Just Transition Fund. And I know you have uh, looked into that as well. And you really want to see um, the the revenues raised from any carbon tax uh, ring fenced and that some of the income would go back into the kind of retrofitting you're talking about. Was that part of your submission as well? Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've, this is a drum that we've been banging for many years before. It, you know, it, it's become universally popular. Uh, for many, many budget, uh, pre-budget submissions we've made, we have called upon uh, incentives for private landlords, you know, who are, who are, um, uh, you know, who have had tenants, uh, you know, to have incentives to, to insulate and, and retrofit their, their homes. Uh, you know, we, we have called upon, um, uh, more funds to be made, made available to local authorities to retrofit homes. That is the way that, that, that you will actually have a comfortable, uh, easy and cheap uh, way of, of, of heating a home for, 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 for people who are on low income. Uh, I mean, we are very, very conscious, you know, that the bag of coal that we have been supplying for many, many decades uh, is only putting a stick and plaster over the, 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 the wounds. You know, that is the, 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 the difficulty that people have in, in, in just... And in after you made your submission uh, to the Joint Directors Committee on Climate Action, what was the response from, from the deputies present? Um, I wasn't actually at the the, the uh, presentation um, uh, order, but um, for, from what from what I understand, the, the, the responses were very positive. Good. So you're hoping that there will be some move towards supplying the uh, the kind of retrofitting support that you're looking for. 
Uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, not only that, you know, if we don't poverty proof uh, any measures that are brought in, uh, we're, we're seeing a situation where um, people, in, including elderly people on pensions, will not be able to uh, heat their homes. I mean, we already see situations where uh, older people have to go to bed at, at six and seven o'clock in the evening because they already can't uh, afford to, to heat, heat their homes. The fuel allowance isn't even back to where it was in 2010. And we've seen an increase of, of nearly 30 percent in the cost of fuel since that time. And when you go into homes, obviously you're, you're, you're pointing specifically to elderly people, but you must see young families in dire straits as well when you, when you visit homes. Absolutely, um, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, people are trying to juggle, they're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul. Um, you know, people, the high rents are, are causing a, incredible hardship on people. So um, uh, actually heating the home is, is way, way down the list in terms of priority. I mean, people have to feed their, their children. They have to ensure that they pay the rent, otherwise they won't have a roof over their head. And they have to ensure that, that the education uh, needs of, of, of the kids are taken care of. So unfortunately, heat is, is way, way down the list. Um, and, and that in itself causes... Uh, sickness in the house it causes a, a, a lot of discomfort and a lot of problems All right well uh, that's one obviously we'll be watching closely and, and we'll be coming back to uh, no doubt Kieran Stafford National President of the Vincent de Paul on the Climate Action thanks for joining us this morning on LMFM and we'll take a break Orla Carmody on LMFM Fianna Fáil is calling for the creation of a five-year projection of special needs education in each school catchment area to end the inevitable panic and mad dash for places which occurs every year at the start of the term in September. Uh, Thomas Byrne, TD, the Parkley's spokesperson in education, joins us now. And uh, you had a private member's motion on uh, special needs education. How did that go? Well, look, it's the second motion we've had now since the summer, actually. We had one there at the start of the summer that we've won now. And I, I don't really think the government is getting to grips with this problem at all. Um, they, we forced Finnegate actually to give themselves the power to force schools to open special classes where they were needed. Um, instead of planning uh, for special classes, they've now used that power in one particular area, but they, they're not meant to use it if, if they've planned. Like, if they've planned education, there's no, no need to, to force schools to do these things. Uh, and obviously you're it. saying you can predict the numbers required and you could put well, a five-year plan in place and, and try and put the budget in place to allow things to happen. Well, it's difficult uh, in terms of predictions, but already uh, the government and the National Council for Special Education are moving away from, you know, providing things per individual child and they reckon that they're able to sort of work out based on demographics how many special teachers are required, what resource hours should be required in the school and eventually they hope to move that to special needs assistance. Now the jury is out on that uh, but there is no doubt um, that the planning that is happening at the moment uh, in terms of what classes are needed uh, for these children. Remember, every child has a constitutional right to primary education. They're entitled to that under the Constitution. Um, but the, the, this dash at the moment, which, uh, which I described, which happens at the end of the year, and particularly at the start of the school year, to find spaces, is just so undignified uh, for families. Uh, and so uh, stressful and for parents. Needs. And what's happening now, I mean, the, the one thing the government's able to point is that they forced some schools in Dublin West. They've, they've, they say that they've opened a special school in Dublin West, but actually... They haven't. The classes haven't opened yet in most cases. They'll open sometime in October. The special school will open in October as well. So I think that's, that's outrageous that this is somehow accepted and is seen um, by government as some type of a victory. We need to make sure that all of these places are available. The population has gone up. Uh, the number of autism, uh, particularly autism diagnosis, has gone up. But I'm not just talking about autism. There are other special education needs as well. But autism is obviously 
one of the most common, but there are other, there are other, other cases too. Uh, and we need to have this planned. I mean, there, there are constituents of mine who have children going maybe 15, 20 miles one way and maybe a, another sibling with, with special needs going 10 miles the other way to a school simply because it's a place, not necessarily because it's the appropriate school, uh, but because the school uh, in their particular area either you know, it doesn't have a space, it doesn't have uh, a special unit. So we, we've got to plan this properly and we're spending a huge amount of money on taxis, on transport, uh, on guardians, on the public trans- on the bus transport and taxi transport as well. Um, and I don't think that's sustainable. You know, what, what is sustainable is that children get education in their local school in an appropriate setting. There's and, another issue regarding the numbers of children with special needs who are getting home tuition and that must be very costly as well and it doesn't provide for the socialisation that the child needs at a, at a normal school. Well, absolutely. The vast majority of children who are on, on home tuition are actually just can't find a place. So the government says, well, here you go, here's a few quid. Of course, the frightening thing about even that, and that's, it's bad enough that the numbers have gone up, the, the cost of that has gone up by a quarter in the last two years. Uh, but it's bad enough that actually this year there are kids at home now and teachers who are going to teach them waiting to be approved uh, home tuition. Uh, and that, that's even worse. So, so there's so many problems with this. The, the SNA appeals deadline, I think, is tomorrow um, for this year. So there's, there's a load of kids out there who need SNAs whose schools have appealed uh, these decisions. And many of the schools have already put in appeals, but they haven't heard back uh, from the government on it. So there's a lot of things need to change on this. And, and the home tuition going up every year is symptomatic of a system that just simply cannot cope uh, with what are constitutional rights of children. We have to do this. We are required to do this. You know, it's, it's not good enough to say, uh, here's a few quid, go home and get a teacher. Uh, these children need to be educated in an appropriate setting so that they can fulfil their roles in society. And all of the evidence shows, Orla, that the, the earlier you intervene, when there's early intervention, um, less supports are often needed later in the, in the school uh, system and, and later in life. Absolutely. And, think, and, and we heard we earlier... Th- we heard earlier uh, this week from uh, Minister Ed for Education Joe McHugh that he will he's announcing draft rules obliging schools to formally notify Tuzla when uh, a child's hours are cut and that's something that's kind of gone under the radar and particularly say for example the traveller community I heard a, a very impassioned a young woman from the traveller community speaking about how traveller children are told you know go off home and, and of course the child welcomes this with open arms but it's really a way of reducing the hours that child gets an education and this is happening uh, with children with disabilities as well they're just reducing their hours yeah it, it only happens traveler children children with disabilities and poor children in general it, that's that's on, uh, it doesn't happen to anyone else and and it has to end um, if there's an issue with discipline in relation to the child, if there's an issue with challenging behaviours, there are other ways of dealing with that in terms of getting professionals in. And in some cases, schools will have to suspend or expel pupils. That, that's going to happen. Um, but at the moment, what's happening is, is there's an informal system developing, which really we have to nip in the bud. And we organised a, a committee meeting on this, as I am, the charity Inclusion Ireland. In fact, I'm meeting some of the people behind the study that Inclusion Ireland did later today. And... Uh, they have done research. I mean, there's open one in three children with autism on reduced hours and it just has to end. And uh, my, my fear is that the government, by regulating this, are kind of allowing in a few ifs and buts. I mean, our position is very, very clear that every child is entitled to a school day unless advised medically or professionally otherwise. But at least, not... if, at least if a school has to notify TUSLA if they're offering a reduced timetable, at least there's some record of it. Whereas at the moment, it literally is happening willy-nilly and falling under the radar. And yes, and the evidence is anecdotal. There's no proper research done on this. But I do know, I mean, I've seen it myself. Jane Castle was on to me about this. Frank O'Rourke did. The, and the National Council for Special Education tell us they haven't done enough research and that they are starting it. They do say it's a worldwide phenomenon that they're picking up around the world. 
Um, but I, I think we have to nip it in the bud and make sure that the right support is in place, not just for the, the kids. They need the support, but the schools as well obviously need the resources and the support as well to be able to deal with challenging behaviour. But it's not just, there's no evidence that it's all about challenging behaviour either. Like I mean, Some people have said that, and the Minister mentioned that a few times the other day. Um, we, we don't know why they're on, on reduced hours. We just know the categories. It's convenience, involved. obviously, or something like that. But before I let you go, um, Deputy Thomas Byrne, can I just ask you about the uh, the divisional headquarter of the Gardaí moving from uh, Meath to Mullingar? What's your reaction to that? Well, look, it's not good news. That's that's the bottom line. Um, and it's, like, you know, when you see it staying in Drogheda to cover large border areas and people who can walk into Drogheda Garda Station in County Meath will be under Mullingar. I mean, it's it, it, a bit crazy. I think the reality is over the last few years, Navin Garda Station has not been upgraded. I mean, we've been calling for division headquarters. In fact, Senior Gardaí asked us to, and we had all questions then and discussions in the doll about it. Uh, it was not put on the government capital plan. Mullingar was... And I think that's the difference. So they have the state-of-the-art facility in Mullingar. And, and that's what the Chief Super told us at the Joint Policing yeah. Committee. On, on, on. So that's the reality. Like it is, It's a body blow in terms of status. So is uh, the decision me, to put the, the headquarters there based on the fact that the building is already there rather than any other more common sense? But, but unfortunately, approach. because we didn't get a building which we were asking for over the last five or six years, that, that's given the, 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 the advantage to, to Mullingar. I would say, though, that the situation with Gardaí and East Mead in particular, South East Mead, and, and in parts of North Mead as well, is, is absolutely dire. And when I heard the Commissioner's announcement first and uh, that this was about putting more Gardaí on the ground, I certainly was willing to give anything a chance. I mean, we've, you know, very poor facilities in Late Town, very poor facilities in Dalik, no Garda station in Retote, it's the largest town in Ireland without a Garda station. Um, and what I'd like to see is actually some, you know, the, 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 the details of how this is going to, as promised by the Commissioner and the Government, how this is going to improve Garda numbers and Garda response on the ground. And we haven't seen that. And, you know, I've, I was at the Joint Policing Committee uh, for me on Monday. I've spoken to other senior Gardaí, um, and they really haven't been able to give me a huge amount of detail about this. So if, if the first thing they're doing is telling, telling us they're taking away division headquarters, it's clearly going to anger a lot. All right, well, it's something we're going to have to come back to. But uh, thank you indeed for your comments this morning, uh, Deputy Thomas Byrne. And returning now to the issue of the public services card, which we've been following closely on the programme here. And Digital Rights Ireland, a public advocacy organisation, has launched a campaign with the hashtag No to PSC, with the concern that the public services card has become a national identity card by another name. And we're joined now by TJ McIntyre, Chairman of the group and Associate Professor of Law at UCD. Good morning morning. Good morning. Now, obviously, the pressure is mounting. Regina Doherty, she did say she had her legal advice and things would take their course. But she came under pressure in the House again yesterday regarding this. And your response from your group? I think the problem with the government in general is that it tends to use legal advice the way that a drunk uses a lamppost. In other words, it's for support rather than illumination. That's a very clear way of putting it. Well, what we've seen here is that the state has embarked on a long-term project over a number of years with direct costs of now €62 million just in the Department of Social Protection alone. Obviously, a lot more than that when you factor in the other departments as well, though we don't have a figure for that yet. And there's an unwillingness to back down even in the face of really what's a very damning report from the independent regulator. So I think we have to ask... Um, just why are they so unwilling to um, accept that view and why are they insisting now that they're going to go ahead um, with the challenge in court to that? Do you believe that the concerns your organisation and others share, the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, for example, we had them on the programme as well. Um, Do you believe those concerns are shared by the average Joe or Josephine on the street? I think people understand 
when, for example, somebody has their pension cut off, despite the fact that there's no question about their identity, because the department is essentially trying to force people to take up the card to meet a quota. I think they understand the inherent unfairness of that. And I think people understand that any kind of um, large-scale database can be abused by insiders, by snoopers, that it creates a very valuable target for hackers. And I think they understand that these projects have to be done right. And that's what hasn't happened here. And you have evidence of people who actively, you believe, had uh, benefits withheld until they signed up to the up to the card. That's right. So we've had pensioners um, who've been denied a pension. We've had um, people being refused a passport. We've had people unable to get a driving license unless they signed up. And the um, Data Protected Commissioners report has confirmed that this was being done illegally in those cases. Now, you're a node to PSC hashtag. What are you doing with this and what is your group actively seeking? What we're doing essentially is round two of the existing investigation. So the existing investigation is about public services card under the old law as it applied pre-2018. I'm sure all your listeners have heard about the GDPR, um, which came into effect in May 2018. Um, That introduces stricter rules, uh, new penalties for breaches. And we're asking the commissioner to open a fresh investigation now based on where we are at the moment and asking her to um, impose those more strict penalties um, on the Department of Social Protection, but also the other departments involved in this. Now, you also have concerns about what was described in the media as the disrespect for the Data Protection Commissioner and the disregarding of the the powers. How does that work? Well, the government has been at pains for a few years to say that Ireland is a great destination for um, technology companies. And as part of that, we respect people's privacy. We have an adequate regulatory mechanism in place to make sure that companies like Google, Facebook, um, Microsoft respect the data of individuals throughout Europe. So, Because effectively, if these firms are headquartered in Ireland, Ireland becomes the lead regulator for all these firms. But I think they've undermined that significantly now by showing that Um, As far as they're concerned, certainly, the findings of the DPC are of no value and they've treated the office with um, something close to contempt. Now, your response is to organise not a class action, but a mass action, because a class action only occurs in the movies. But what is the difference between a mass action and what are you going to do and how how is it going to look? So under the GDPR, we're allowed to bring complaints on behalf of people who give us their details to do so. So if people have, for example, had their pension cut off, been refused a passport, been refused a driving license, been forced to take up a public services card when they didn't want to, um, we're going to make a complaint to the DPC on foot of that. And what will this complaint, how will that, what, how, what will it look like or what effect will this complaint take? Well, it will effectively force a second investigation by the Data Protection Commission um, and it will make sure that individuals have the right to be updated on how that investigation takes place. But also it will um, give us greater scope to look for remedies. For example, having people's data deleted if they were forced to give it over without um, real consent. And you're looking to get a thousand people to join you in this. Is that the target? That's right. And how will you actually seek those people to come forward to you? Do you want them to sign up to something or join your group or how does that work? 
yes, if they go to digitalrights.ie, they'll see a link to the um, website. We've set up a specific website for the campaign and they can just sign up directly there. So you're specifically looking for people who already have a public services card and who have concerns about the way their data might be used. It's those people you want to actually contact you. Two sets of people, really. People who have a card, uh, who are forced to take it up, who didn't want one, and people who were denied a benefit because they didn't take it up. You want to hear from those and and to take your action forward. All right, that's TJ McIntyre, chairman of the uh, Digital Rights Group in Ireland. And thank you for joining us on LMFM this morning. And we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. The call for commuters to stagger their journeys to work to alleviate overcrowding on public transport has been resoundingly criticised. The onus on solving the transport problem should not be placed on commuters, but should be solved with legislation. And that's according to Fianna Fáil general election candidate for me, the East Deirdre Garrity Smith, and she joins us now. Good morning, Deirdre. As a commuter yourself for over 15 years, you've suffered those overcrowded buses and trains. Hi, Orla. Thanks for having me on. Yes, I have indeed. So I have commuted um, for the last kind of 15 years or so. And to say that I've used every permutation and combination of buses, trains, cars, everything to try and get in and out of your place of work every day is, is uh, understating it slightly. So I fully understand the pressures on commuters as they try and, and get predominantly in and out of the city centre, but also to, to other um, other workplaces around uh, around the general region. And, and it's incredibly stressful. And so I was struck this week when I saw the calls by Erin Roderan to for commuters to stagger their journeys. And while that is something that, in principle, I would perhaps agree with, you know, it's, it's generally a good concept to, to stagger journeys, it's a bit premature, in my opinion, to, to ask commuters to do that without kind of having the supporting infrastructure in place, um, first and foremost. And what I mean by that is, for starters, you need to actually be able to access the bus and, and train services outside of peak times. Um, in, you know, many cases, uh, you know, outside of sort of 8.15, it becomes increasingly difficult um, to actually get, you know, trains and buses. Because they're much more infrequent, obviously, later in the day, yes. Absolutely. So, you know, for many people, that's that's not possible. But also, actually, from a very, very practical level, many people don't actually have the flexibility to be in a position to stagger their work, um, you know, their work arrangements. Well, we know that um, employers are being increasingly asked for flexible hours and family friendly practices. And there is a, a slight shift towards that. But it's probably not moving fast enough, really, for people to just decide to respond with staggered hours. Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, as you say, you know, there is a general shift, but it it is, you know, it's very much at the discretion of the individual employers. And I suppose some employers, you know, might be loath to to, to kind of uh, take on new approaches to to arranging their um, their workforce. But I suppose my proposals, what what I've been working on for a number of months, is um, how we might support flexible work arrangements better. And the idea behind my proposals are. Um, based on research that has worked very well in other jurisdictions such as Australia and the UK. And effectively, what I'm proposing is a right to request. And what that means is that um, we would put in place legislation that employees would have a right to request flexible work arrangements. And then employers would go away and have something like a six to an eight week period, perhaps, to consider you know, how they might rearrange working. And um, I mean, flexible working can be anything from sort of part-time work to job sharing, to working from home, to working kind of non-core hours. You know, there can be a variety of ways that you can do this. Um, 
and there would be no, you know, nobody would be forcing employers um, either. When you say a right to request, Mm. so you believe at this stage, uh, at this point where we're at now, that a lot of employees would feel they didn't have a right to request. They would feel that they couldn't even bring it up with their employer. Uh, Could they start later or, 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 or whatever they might be looking for or home working? Tell me how the right to request works. It means that it's just acceptable for you to do so. Exactly. So effectively, you you know, you're, it's put on statutory footing that you have the right to request from your employer. You are, le- you know, you have a legal basis on which to request that your employer considers um, granting you flexible work. But it doesn't compel the employer in any way to respond to it. But at least they have to hear you out. Well, no, it, it would. It would compel the employer to respond, but perhaps not to introduce something that might be detrimental to a business. So you have to balance, obviously, the needs of businesses as well and to ensure that there's no loss of productivity. So to be absolutely clear, there would be fail-safe building, built into this to ensure that businesses would not be negatively impacted. The whole point is to encourage businesses to re- rethink how they organise you know, working time and how perhaps they may not have thought about this previously. So, for example, you know, if you're a bus driver or you're waiting tables, it might be quite difficult for a flexible work arrangement to be introduced. But for, you know, for many people who might be working in offices, it's incredibly um, easy these days with, you know, the introduction of of technology. Um, You know, many employers just may not have reorganised their working time um, to to the benefit of employees. But also there's actually, you know, there's, there's benefits to employers as well from this because when you have a less stressed workforce, you know, they're, they're not stressed when they arrive at work in the morning and, and equally so they're not as stressed when they go home in the evenings. It creates better work-life balance, but it also increases productivity as well. Um, and does and again, the research you have from the UK and Australia, where, as you say, this is already working and this right to request has, has come from, um, it, does the research also bear that out? Does it show any metrics around productivity, around uh, contentment, around staff retention, those kind of things that are terribly important to employers? Absolutely. I mean, there's an abundance of research, global research, that would show that, you know, where where employees are less stressed, that they are more productive. You know, stress in itself decreases productivity. So we know that, you know, there's a huge rise in anxiety and in burnout at the moment. And a huge degree of that has to be, you know, the increasing stresses that technology place on workers. And um, you're, you're always on nowadays when you have, you know, access to email on your phone and you're you know, you, you could, it's very difficult to switch off. So arguably the nine to five model of working is slightly outdated. And the whole idea behind these proposals then is that it just slightly modernises um, the approach and it ensures that employers are compelled to at least reconsider is there a way that we might be able to, to introduce proposals that might make it a little bit easier or a little bit different to work. Um, and I think that's a good thing because like like we, we spoke about earlier, Orla, you know, quite often the law is, is slightly slower to catch up with, with the realities of, of actual um, daily life. And I think this is one scenario where we can. It's not a very difficult um, piece of legislation to introduce, but it is something that would have a real impact on people's lives. Now, uh, how far have you got with the legislative uh, examination that you're looking for on this right to request? Where do you take it next? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's quite well developed. It's a very developed policy that I have. I've worked on it for a number of months and I've had um, significant conversations. I've been working with members of the front bench um, in the Fall front bench and I'll continue to, to work with those members as well. And obviously we'll have to, you know, have a period of consultation as well um, to ensure that, you know, there's clarity around um, around the measures. But I, I would be confident that this is something that given how well it has worked in other similar jurisdictions, I would be confident that this is something that is that is a practical proposal 
proposal um, and, that, and that could be implemented in a very short space of time. All right. Well, Councillor Deirdre Garrity-Smith, uh, thank you for joining us with that this morning on LMFM. And if you're interested in going online and looking at peaktime.ie, that is the uh, Irish Rail uh, site to allow you check for less crowded trains. If you are commuting and you want to just check in advance, uh, can you pick up a less crowded, less uncomfortable train? Peaktime.ie might be able to help you with that. And that's where we have to leave it on the programme for today. My thanks, as always, to the team here, Marie Kieran's Maggie McGuire, and Chris Murray and I'll be back with you tomorrow morning all going well at 9.15 until then have a great day bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.